Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G, aligning business and technology. Today on Midwest Mavericks, we have Paul Bryan and Lauren Fix, hosts of His Turn, Her Turn. You can find them at histurnherturn.com. It's a show highlighting one of my very favorite topics, cars, notably fast cars. Uh, welcome, Paul and Lauren. Hi. Good morning. I just have to ask uh, right off the bat, being car people, what kind of cars do you guys drive? Fraulein Helga occupies the right side of my garage, which is a uh, Porsche 911 coupe. Nice. It depends on the time of year, but I have a Porsche Cayenne diesel, which I refuse to get rid of because I love it, yeah, and an Audi RS5 with a Miltec exhaust, and a bunch of Shell Performance uh, older and newer Shelby Mustangs, and the and 4GT. <laughs> oh, whoa. Wow. Lauren, you clearly have the distinction of being a race car driver. You can tell by that list of uh, cars. Recently, if you were to name a car that really blew your mind, either visually or or by driving it, what what would you say is the best car you've you've seen recent recent months or years? I would have to give it a handful. I would say the new Corvette, extremely impressive. The GT500, I really, really like. Different vehicles. Uh, I had a great time with the Lamborghini Urus, which is their overpriced SUV at a quarter million dollars. You know, and then we drive a lot of fun cars. Like, I have a great, my kids both have Mini Coopers. They're John Cooper Works cars. What yeah. a blast. Yeah. So much fun. So, you know, there's a lot of really great cars out there. And you, you go to the auto shows every year and we see things and go, eh, it's another car. It's another, you know, compliance, utilitarian vehicle, you know, yeah. yawn. Yeah. Um, and, and we see plenty of that. And, and it's funny because Paul and I get very excited about really awesome cars. We drove the new Hyundai Sonata. And it's a finalist for the North American Car of the Year. And, and it really was impressive. I want to add to that that... that uh it's not always a function of when you look at that Monroney sticker that there's a, 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 a an oxygen gasping moment when you take a look at that final number on the window sticker. Yeah, uh, I, I can remember last year when uh, Genesis had their G70, and and they came out with that, and I'm looking at that, and it's a 300 what 65 375 horsepower uh, midsize sedan. I was incredibly impressed with that car, and uh, and as it turns out, that did win North American Car of the Year last year. So it's it's yeah, not it's always a function of can it go two hundred miles an hour? Can it pull one point two lateral G's? Uh, you you have to factor in a uh, a value proposition in there as well. It's funny you say that Paul cuz you know I I uh, it occurred to me last night as I was thinking about us today and and I was driving my Ford Expedition which I love I I tow some some boats in the summertime and it's really just a wonderful truck but I I I'm blown away by how much vehicles cost now that that was a 2018 and 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 I think that was slightly less than the first house I bought and yeah. and I just don't I, – I, I was trying to understand, like, why vehicles – I know there's a lot more technology in them, but, but why in the world do vehicles cost so darn much these days? Yeah, that's a twofold answer. Uh, number one, you've got natural inflation that's built into to anything. If you were to compare a 65 Mustang to a Mustang today – you, you can't say, well, that that bullet Mustang that you buy for seventy-five G, you know, that's certainly more than what inflation would incur on the number, based on just the years involved. So the so there is more cost involved. But I would I would suggest that 
a lot of the cost that is built into that comes out of government regulation, comes out of emissions uh, regulations that they have to do, safety features that have to be built into cars, not only from a governmental standpoint, but also from the standpoint of just keeping up with the Joneses. I mean, there there are just things that people expect to see in their car now that add to the cost of the vehicle. Yeah. So it's, right. it's, that, that's, it's not just Plus, you've got all the rate. new computers. The average car used to have only 200 microprocessors in them, and now you're looking at thousands. You know, one to run the analog brakes, you know, one to run the active safety features, one to add the passive safety features. You want your round view camera. You want uh, active cruise control, blind spot detection. Each one's a, a small little computer that connects to a big computer, and you start realizing the programming and the electronics that are involved in these cars is very expensive. And, of course, there's a cost to, to building this in, plus the standard safety features that are required by the federal government and emissions. All that is increasing the cost. And you know, they got to make money, too. Otherwise, you know, there'd be no jobs. And think about the automotive industry, half of the Dow Jones. There are other things, too, that, for instance, is stuff that's making the news right now. For instance, uh, the California Air Resources Board, for a long time, has pretty much driven the bus in terms of what emissions uh, standards are built into cars because they sell more cars in California than any place else. And so just from, a, from an economic standpoint, those things have to get built in. They're not going to build two different versions of a car, one California emissions and one for well, the rest. They, they the used to actually or, do that, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah. yeah they did. Yes, but they did. They, You're right. They finally said, we, we can't do that anymore. It's just prohibitively expensive. And what do you do with the guy who moves from Michigan to California, to San yeah. Diego, you know, is his car now junk. Which so probably doesn't hurt the rest of the country to have a slightly cleaner car, that's for sure. Uh, it, well, you know, yeah, you, but, I wanna... but how much cleaner? That's that's the point. And, yeah. and the point is, is that we're, we're at a level of such diminishing return on incredible amounts of money that it costs to achieve silly level emission standards. So, so the guy who is from West Virginia is now forced to pay a premium on the car that he buys because some guys in Sacramento say, we want the emissions at, at a certain point. So it becomes much more expensive for the guy in, in West Virginia. And, and I would suggest that the people in California, if, if you were to take a look at, at the level of emissions that cars put out now, Versus the first time we ever had emissions in cars built into them in, in 1975, you, you have to put in so much money, so much research, so much extra engineering to get just you know, an itty bitty more. I mean, compare a 75 car to a, to a 2020 car now, and it's a minuscule percentage of the, the emissions that we put out in 75. But to go that extra step is, is an incredibly expensive proposition. And that's kind of what mm -hmm. what DOT now is is saying versus CARB. So you know, Lauren and I have our thoughts on on how that should be handled. But but nevertheless, I mean, geez, we've 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 seen manufacturers who now drill out uh, like brake pedals and stuff like that, and so that they have little mm -hmm. holes in them or they lightweighting it. So yeah. yeah, just just trying to lightweight the car. Uh, yeah, I've seen some cars that are offering like aluminum hoods and aluminum uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, bonnets to yeah. cover the trunk and, and whatnot to reduce weight. Um, there's really two aspects here that I want to dig in a little bit. You know, the, that, that truck I was talking about has saved me 
uh, on two occasions from a rear end collision, um, you know, by its uh, collision detection uh, and in the lane change or the lane guidance uh, capabilities are really amazing. Not only alerting you if you're sliding in lanes, uh, you know, I drive in Chicago traffic and you're looking at it, you know, out the window to see if you can change lanes and somebody in front of you slams on the brakes. Uh, the car alerts you mm-hmm. if you're um, looking to the right and you're drifting to the left. The car wakes you up and says, hey, uh, stay in your lane. Uh, how do you guys feel about these features? I, I know they, they add to the price, but it seems like those things are worthwhile. It's funny. I guess it depends on your driving awareness. And Paul and I are real big on testing it and shutting off most of it. Blind spot detection is great. We hate the the lane departure. You know, you're, you're in the lane, and maybe the lane shifts because there's construction. You know, yeah, what we've all seen that you know, go around right. the bridge, and so the lot the lines change. Well, it doesn't know that, so it tries to push you back in the lane. And some of them are very aggressive. Yes. Others are not as aggressive. But it, we, you know, we'll play with it. Some of them will tone if they're adjustable. We'll bring it to the low mode, test it in the different modes, and then we'll shut it off because right. we pay attention. But right. the blind spot detection, I, I like that a lot. Uh, like the new Kia Telluride, the new Hyundai Palisade, when you put the turn signal on, it turns one of the gauges, whether it be left or right, into a little camera so you can actually see what's behind you. Oh, when you're driving cool. a rural SUV, that's a huge benefit. It sure is, so, especially and, if and you're pulling one, a trailer. Yeah, and Toyota does that. The other thing that figures into that as well is that of all of the engineering disciplines in the universe, I would suggest that uh, uh, traffic engineers and road building engineers have got more slop in, in their their, their systems than anybody else. When when they start when they make a curve, you're you're driving up 294 up up toward O'Hare, and you go by that long curve that, that loops around yep. the airport. Uh, that is not a constant radius, right? So so and, and you. Think of a thousand different examples, but you're here in Chicago, and yeah. so it makes sense for me to relate it to you this way. Right. It's not a constant radius, so the car doesn't know that that engineer who designed that curve was maybe not the brightest guy in his class, yeah. And, yeah. And, or and you know, he, living yeah. with a constricted uh, <laughs> constricted <laughs> yeah. space, so, you know? right? So, so, right. so the car thinks that it's going to be on a constant radius, but but it's not. Because not only do you have Bob the bad engineer, but you've also got Phil and, and Jim and Donna who built that, and they kind of went, "Wow, you know, see, we got to go around this building over here, so we'll tighten it up a little right. bit." So, so the car and the road really don't talk to each other the way that uh, that you would think. Once you set a, a, a curve arc in a in a corner, and all of a sudden the road changes, you think you're fine. Yeah. You know, you're, you're negotiating that thing just fine, but the computer has a, a completely different idea of what's going on. I was on the Autobahn last <laughs> week, and it is shocking um, how consistent, how, quote, German uh, the roads are there compared to the United States. I mean, they're, uh, even the construction zones, um, you feel like uh, were very intentional in how they separate, allocate, and uh, guide the drivers through. If you've got this automation that you're building into the cars, we all have heard uh, about the autonomous vehicles and where those are going. I mean, it still gives me 
a great deal of concern because I, you know, I'm coming from the computer industry. I understand glitches. You know, we're going through that with the 737 mm-hmm. Max at Boeing right now of a computer glitch killing people. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering right. if you guys can weigh on, weigh in on this topic of autonomous oh, yeah. cars. You, you go first. Oh yeah, he knows I got an opinion on this. <laughs> You're not going to see autonomous cars for 15 to 20 years, and there's a couple hurdles. Uh, five hurdles, actually. The first one is the easy one to, to overcome, which is consumers don't want it. They don't feel confident when that lady got killed by an autonomous Uber. Yeah. Uh, chooses walking across the street. Somebody was supposed to be paying attention behind the wheel, and they don't because they trusted the technology. Right. And people don't trust the technology. If they did, they would use most of it, which they don't. Uh, you've got government regulations. They still have not decided today whether there's going to be pedals and a steering wheel. Listen, I am not getting into an amusement ride with no pedals and no steering wheel. Because if something goes wrong, <laughs> there's no override. So right. I'm out on that. Right. Uh, and a lot of people feel that way. And the government's going to make that decision because they think they know what's best for you, which scares me because none of them own cars. They have drivers and we pay for all of that. So they have no concept about how we live every day. The next thing is the insurance companies. Uh, they don't want to insure. Who's at fault? You know, right. whether there's an accident with a non-autonomous car with another autonomous car, it's just going to lead to higher insurance rates, uh, even though it should lead to lower. And the only way it would is if every single car on the road was autonomous. It, it, it's not cash for clunkers. There's no way everyone's going to get rid of their car and buy an autonomous car. It just doesn't make sense for everybody. Uh, and then you've got weather. Weather is something that's going to be a huge factor. I live in Buffalo. You're in Chicago. When it snows, it takes away all the, the lines, lines in the street. Yeah. It takes away everything. You can't even see half tons of whiteout. Well, if you got to get to work, you got to take your, you know, someone to the hospital. Got to get your kids somewhere. You know, grandma needs you. You get in the car and you make it happen because that's what we do. Right. Uh, so that's a huge factor. And the, and the last one's the hackers. The hackers are they'll get thrown. These kids sit in Bangladesh on their bed and they go, "Hey, wait, I got this one. Wait, click. I just got into the whole U.S. traffic grid. Let me hit crash." And you know, it doesn't have to be a huge mm. hack either. I mean, think, think of what happens when traffic lights with technology that we have right now somehow flame out at, at some intersection. You know, imagine one. Think, think of the, the backups that occur and the mayhem on the road that occurs just from, you know, four traffic lights going out. If, if you start getting serious about your hacking, holy shnikes, yeah. you, you, can, you, you can cause some damage. Well, you know, I've I've heard some interesting projections. Um, actually, uh, this was uh, coming from a guy who takes old jalopies and uh, rebuilds the inner workings into these really sophisticated electric cars. So it looks like a junker driving around the road, but it's it's actually a high tech uh, vehicle. It's pretty cool. I don't know if you've seen this, but he mentioned, you know, that it, it's an interesting business model today. But in the future, you might need a special license to drive a car. And it hit me, Lauren, as you say, until. All of the vehicles are autonomous vehicles. You know, you have this issue where you've got a human driving a car against robots, and robots could actually intercommunicate with one another and and then control together what's happening. But if you have a human driver there, there's no control over what he's going to do or he or she's going to do. You know, the future might be that not only are there autonomous cars, but you might not actually be able to own a car. There are, there are a lot of people like myself who believe that it's far too easy to get a driver's license as things sit right now. Yeah. But but let's take a look at some of the, the preposterous, insanely infantile, uninformed, stupid uh, recommendations that some 
folks around D.C. And, and around the country are saying that within 10 years, we need to have autonomous cars. And they're going to be talking to each other. No and way. Going to save lives and quack, quack, quack. Yeah. Think about the numbers. Yeah. On this. I mean, let's just well, look the, at the, the most basic numbers on this. We have a fleet of about, for a conversation's sake, about 300 million vehicles in the United States. So let's say that starting tomorrow, every one of the cars that we sell are going to be level five autonomous. You don't have to touch anything, no steering wheel, no brake pedals, nothing. Let's say every one of them is. And let's further the, the hypothesis and say that we're going to sell them at a rate that we have never been able to accomplish in the United States. Let's say we're going to sell them at oh, let's go crazy and go 20 million vehicles per year. You know, right now we sell about 16, 5, 17 million vehicles uh, per year is, is our SAR. So if you just run some basic numbers on that, if you sell everything at, at that and you've got a fleet of 300 million vehicles, you're looking at 15 years to turn over the national fleet. And that's if every right. one of them had it. It, it doesn't that, work. And that assumes that the technology existed when you started that 15-year period. Exactly. Yeah. My car will tell me if there, you know, an impending collision is coming. It, 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 it you mm -hmm. know, it vibrates the the steering if I'm drifting uh, in a lane, which I do, in fact, turn off sometimes driving in construction zones. It's really annoying. But mm -hmm. you, you know, one thing it does though is it. It makes you a little less aware. Like, you know, oh, the car's going to tell me if something's happening. Right. I'll look down for a moment longer. I'll look out the window a little bit longer. Yeah. You, you should drive a Subaru. It's the ultimate nanny car right now. Oh, my God. I mm -hmm. get into one of those things, and it tells me everything from you're not paying attention. Maybe you need a cup of coffee. Maybe you need your bunions rubbed. <laughs> Maybe, you know, there, I mean, there's a, there's a freaking warning for everything on that car. I get, I get out of that car, and it's like I'm with my ex-wife. I, I feel like I'm just, you know. <laughs> well, I just bought it for my son, so I'm not sure what that – but he's a little ADD, so maybe that, that helps. I don't know. Um, the other side of this technology that I think is really interesting, I, I had the great uh, opportunity to tour uh, the Porsche Cayenne factory in Germany, um, a, a, a oh, couple wonderful. of years ago. Yeah, it was really cool. And I have to say, you know, we, we, we have a lot of manufacturing clients. We're in technology business at Mother G. Um, I've never seen a more sophisticated supply chain in my life. They, they are building Porsches. First of all, it's really cool because the, the uh, frames, uh, you know, it starts at a frame. Uh, just a bare frame on one end of the factory, and they're hanging from the ceiling on this on this rack, um, and they're coming down one after another. And um, the robots are picking up the parts and putting it on the frame, and you know, with operators there to assist, welding, b bolting, mm -hmm. etc. And it goes from uh, a frame all the way to a finished vehicle. Within, I forget, it's like six or eight hours or something like that as it goes down this this production line. Um, but what's most interesting is they're building unique, specially customized models all in line. Um, so, uh, so for example, if, if you ordered one with uh, heated windshield and um, some special gadget uh, that you want, 
you know, whatever, uh, you know, the, the, the various features. I mean, Porsches are, are amazing for the variation that you can have in configuring it. But, but each one of those custom parts are uniquely showing up to your unique vehicle in line in this production line. So everything has to be lined up in exactly the same order. So they're putting the right windshield on the right vehicle. You know, as you see the technology of of the manufacturing side go forward, do you see opportunities for improvements in in uh, in or uh, do you see problems maybe growing out of this? I've been to the Porsche factory, and Paul, you you have been to a lot of factories. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, I I own I own two Porsche Cayennes, and I'll tell you, I'm really impressed with the quality. The Germans do build great cars. Yeah, they do. My wife has one as well. It. Yeah. Think back to a month ago, Lauren, when you and I were at the. Uh, Hyundai factory in, in Montgomery, Alabama. My first observation is that what you just described at, on the Cayenne assembly line is mirrored perfectly in what's being built as a very mass-produced uh, Hyundai manufacturing plant in Alabama. Uh, I, I know that at some point in my life I've had surgery in an operating room that's dirtier than that factory. It's, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I may have as well, actually. But yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, it's funny you say that. that the Porsche was the same. Yeah, but so it's oh, not it. just at that end of of the of the manufacturing scale or strata that's going on. Yeah, they're doing that at Porsche, but they're also building you know a Hyundai Sonata like that. They're also building a, a you know a, the the Kia factory at West Point, Georgia, the same way there. Uh, yep. even, even if you were to go plant in uh, Nashville, sure. Uh, and, and if you want to get into like supercar stuff, even when, when we went through the Marysville, Ohio plant where they build the Acura NSX, we would be able to have this conversation in the middle of the floor of that factory right now and not have to raise our voices one decibel. I mean, it's quiet. It's clean, it's automated, and it's correct. They, they really do. Right. So it's, it's not just on the high end. It's industry-wide. Why? Because they have to. Right. And the other end, though, they're still building cars by hand. They're still building Rolls Royces by hand. They built the Ford yeah. GT by hand at Multimatic. They're still building yeah. Ferraris by hand with a little bit of automation. And some of the best cars that are out there, if you're really looking at the super premiums, the Aston Martins, they're hand-built. Do you think yeah. that that makes a better car, though? I, I used to think, like, the Rolls-Royce back when I was a kid, you know, it was hand-built, and that was like a wow factor. But then, uh, you know, as you see these these innovations in, in what a robot can do and the precision that a robot has over trying to fit something by hand, and I'm thinking of how they fit the windshield onto that Cayenne, the precision by which it, it put it there, both not only placement, but also the precision of all the adhesives that it, it, it required. Do you think the handmade is actually better? If you're building a one-off car, you're building a handmade Bentley uh, or Rolls-Royce or or any of those types of super McLarens, they're all hand-built. The Pagani, which is a stupid overpriced car, when you're looking at that level of vehicle, the hand-built is better because they're laying up carbon fiber pieces and so forth. But when you're looking at things, even the Porsche Cayenne has carbon fiber pieces on that you can order. That's all done, separate pieces brought in. Even Ford is doing that with their Shelby. They're building the Mustang on a production line, then they take it offline. They send it off to Penske where all the carbon pieces arrive. 
and then they're hand placed on because those kind of things you cannot take the risk of any damage because of the damage that would be incurred would be really expensive. If you go through the Ferrari factory at Marinello, there's an awful lot of handwork that goes into making a Ferrari, any Ferrari, anything from a Portofino on up. Uh, there's a lot of handwork that goes in there, and I, I suppose but, you know the the, the ones you're talking about are also low low volume productions as well. I, you yeah, know, if you're building twenty thousand, you could tune that yeah. robot to be super precision. But if you're only building two hundred, it would cost too much to tune the robot rather than just placing it by hand. Yeah, but but for instance, right. let's let's go back to that Hyundai plant that we were talking about in Alabama when when they install bolts on that car. If that bolt calls for 110 pounds foot of torque on every bolt that goes in, in this assembly, those wrenches that they use, the automated robotic wrenches, they all know that that bolt has to go to 110 pounds foot of torque. Right. And, and it goes to 110 pounds foot of torque. You know, yeah, right. So it's like a torque like, stick, you know, They make those like torque sticks, too, so. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, Robbie, but it's, Robbie it's Robot isn't cheesed off because the Browns lost last night. Yeah. You know. <laughs> on a production car that they're producing a lot of, like a Mustang, a Corvette, you have to do it on a production line where you want the accuracy. And, and I, saw, I used to be a trainer for uh, Infinity, and we learned about the iBath system, and they were talking about gaps in panels and why that was so critical and that was one of the things that I think is really important when consumers buy cars. You don't want to look at like a Tesla where you're saying a gap is wide here and close there and there's angles on it. And that's crazy because yeah. it's not done properly. When, when you're buying a car, a Ford F-150, a, a Chevy Corvette, whatever it might be, you want equal gaps on yeah. all your panels. And you can't do that by hand in mass production. It has to be done with a, a computerized production line. So uh, change the subject for a bit. Ford did away with sedans. Uh, you know, I know that we've talked about their mm-hmm. their Mustang. I, I just saw, uh, I think they came out with an electric Mustang, but it looks like a mini SUV more than it does a Mustang. I'm not sure I like this. Here's the bottom line. When you think of the word Mustang, ask anyone. Someone's a car enthusiast, someone who's not. They all know, they all have a Mustang story, and they all think, of, oh, my gosh, my neighbor had one. We used to go drag racing. You know, I love the performance. I love the sound. I love the handling. I love the Shelbys because they're inspiring. And Paul knew Carol Shelby like I did much better than I did. But, and as you think about the, the value down the road and its, its collectability and everything about what Mustangs and Shelbys are about, that is absolutely not what the Mustang Mach-E is about. It is a compliance appliance vehicle. They're building it because they have to, and why in the world they're putting a Mustang on it is a huge mistake, and I'm calling it iconic brand destruction. There's multiple change.orgs out there. Everybody's upset, and I asked executives off the record and on the record, what the hell are you thinking? And they said, well, we talked to a bunch of Mustang people, and I said, who? Who did you talk to? Because you didn't talk to the Mustang Club of America, which I'm a member of, a lifetime member. The Shelby Club of America, I'm a lifetime member. I'm involved in all these different Mustang Shelby Club groups. We named our daughter Shelby. I'm like, you guys are nuts. (laughs) Huge mistake. And the interesting thing was, and it just hit me last night, and I I may have mentioned this to you, Paul. We were at the Ford Bronco reveal at SEMA, and we're standing there, and one of the executives 
came up to us and said, oh, it's great to meet you. Good to see you here. Uh, he had met my husband. And he said, we were just talking about you in a board meeting. And I thought, well, that's weird. Why the hell would you be talking about me, you know? And now, because my daughter got married, and inside my husband's tuxedo, he had the four GT lining, and, you know, <laughs> her name is Shelby, this and that. So I didn't think much about it, and I got in the car afterwards. I said to my husband, I go, why in the world did Ford be talking about me? He says, don't get a big head. I said, I'm not getting a big head. I'm more like, why are they talking about me? But now I know. It struck me last night. They said, we talked to a bunch of people. You know what they did is they said, we know we're not going to make people like Lauren Fix happy because her whole family's into Shelby. We collect cars. My husband's an Amelia Island car winner. He restores these Shelby's. That's what they were talking about. You're never going to make people like Lauren Fix and her family happy because we're all Shelby Mustang people. That, but those are the people you need. In sales, that's low-hanging fruit. You always go back to your base. Hey, you've got an F-150. We're going to build an F-150 Shelby truck. Great. You're getting more performance. But when you're going from an electric car to an electric car with stripes, that does nothing. I don't care. It's a compliance vehicle they're making that no one buys because less than 2% of the entire country is buying electric cars. It just struck me, okay, you want to build a, a sporty electric car, great. Why call it a Mustang? Why why diminish the exactly. brand of Mustang by putting this – I, I, I yeah. thought – Porsche's strategy with their Taycan was beautiful. They have a car. It looks very similar to the Panamera, but they created a separate model. They're creating a separate persona for the vehicle. They're now um, pairing with uh, Lucasfilms uh, for a Star Wars design modification. So, you know, they're kind of tying into this high-tech futuristic aspect, but they've created a completely separate brand identity for the electric car. To me, that's the right way to do this. That's smart. Yeah. Ford had a lot of names that were just sitting around on a shelf that they could have used. And, and oh, goodness. Ford was out like for the Pro LA show. EXP or Pinto? Yeah. yeah. I mean, How about you know, Edsel? <laughs> Call it an Edsel. <laughs> they could have called it an Edison or something like that. Yeah, sure. If it's a great product, and, and this entire conversation that we're having now is about branding and about marketing and about perception and stuff like that, we haven't mentioned that here we have yet another real car company that's coming along building a real electric car, not a hobbyist piece of trash like like a Tesla. That uh, And there's a service you know, facility you can go to, and you get loaner cars. Yeah, I mean, you know, everything. And, you can get, and, and, you can get and everybody's talking about the name. I said, you know, geez, you know, they could have called that thing Fred. And, and if it's a great car, then it'll be a great car, and it will carve its own niche. There was no need for right. them to... Trying to, yeah. to, to, you know, somehow you know, extract some heritage that wasn't really there on, on a vehicle that needs to carve its own niche. Yeah. So, you know, you know, you know, Paul, you know, who knows? Really what. frustrating. Yeah. It's a lot of us are mad. Paul, I got to ask you a question because in, in that last uh, statement, you, you, you kind of threw in the Tesla as a hobbyist piece of trash. And I just have to ask you, I mean, that, well, that's one of the... to really tell you how I felt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if you can share your true feelings for this. But I'm curious. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, I know a couple of people who own them, and they, they swear by them. They think they're wonderful. Well, here, let me, let me so they need service. Let me, let me ask you a question. When, when you go out to buy a great suit, you know, and let's say you're going to splurge and you're going to go on the high end of the market. You're going to go buy yourself a Brioni suit. Yeah. So when you get back and someone says, hey, 
that that looks pretty nice. Is it, tell me about that suit. Where'd you get that? Oh, that's a Brioni. It's bespoke. I I went in and I talked to uh, the, the tailor, and they did this and that. You have any regrets about spending five G on that suit? No, no, God, it's the best suit I ever had in my life. I mean, you mean is it really like forty five hundred dollars better than what you could have gotten over at Men's Warehouse or Joe Banks? Well, why? Of course. I mean, you wouldn't think I'd be stupid enough to go and buy a suit like that. You know, of course, it's fabulous. I would, I would say that the same mentality parallels the people who buy a Tesla. If you go in and you get one, and then someone says, well, "What do you think of it?" Well, you, you, you want to sound like you're Einstein and you're right on the cutting edge of technology and everything. Oh, it's a fabulous car. Oh my gosh, you know, and it's got zero emissions. Did you know that? Here. The things that Lauren talked about before, fit, finish, quality, dealers, service, warranty, confidence, all of the things that you see from, from car companies who are serious automobile manufacturers, Jaguar, Audi, uh, Mercedes is coming along, everybody, and, the, and now it's becoming more egalitarian with, with Ford coming along, with Hyundai coming along with their car. Nissan, Nissan's in the lease forever. Sure, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of them like that, but it still comes down to a very basic statistic, which is that you can build whatever the hell you want to build, but it ain't going to be much because you got less than two percent of the market that's asking for it. Yeah, and 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 people don't want it, and now there's no tax credit. But these companies are getting forced into building vehicles like this. Because they're being held hostage by all of the, the wackadoodles that are out there who are saying, you know, we need to go all electric because there's California. No, it's the state of California. I said wackadoodle, didn't I? Yeah. I, I am intrigued mm-hmm. by the idea. I mean, you know, the average person commutes, you know, what, 50 miles a day. They, they put 60 miles on their car a day, maybe. The idea that you never have to go to a gas station again in your life for the average commute is really really interesting. But I don't know what the long-term viability is for Tesla, given the fact that, uh, you know, as you point out, Paul, it's a it's a small market and uh, you have a lot of entrants. You know, Audi's coming out with theirs. You got the Porsche. You've got some high-end competitors uh, that have more developed brands. And I think, frankly, you know, when you get in a car that you've spent seventy to a hundred and you know fifty thousand dollars for, when you get into that into that um, cockpit, you know, you want to feel like you, you know that was a worthwhile investment. And you know, I get into the Tesla, and at least the older one, I, I, I felt like I was getting into a computer lab rather than a, a, a car to drive. Well, there's well, other factors with that vehicle too. I mean, the problem is we're already tethered to cords with our phone. My, I have an Apple Watch, you know, your tablet, your computer. And if you forget to plug in your car, forget about it. Now, here's the factor that no one's thinking about. So you go and plug your, your car in at someone's house, and it's 110 out, outlet. You probably get about seven miles per hour of charging. So you use a dryer outlet, you might get 20 hours span in the vehicle of charging per, per hour. But they want you to put 48-volt charging systems into your home. And then you can charge up in 8 to 10 hours. Sometimes my car doesn't sit for 8 to 10 hours. Sometimes I have to go somewhere. Then I'd be screwed. But beyond that, you are now putting in a magnetic field in your home that is going to affect the people that live in that house from a health perspective. Magnetic fields are very dangerous. They don't like you building homes near power stations. But you're going to put one in your house. 
And then they tell you, don't put your phone in your ear. It's going to cause brain cancer. But you can sit on a bank of batteries. That's okay. Made with cobalt, lithium, mercury, cadmium, all rare earth minerals. They're mined in the Congo. And who owns all the mines? China. So now we're no longer beholden to the to Middle East. We're beholden to China and the power stations, which, again, we don't have the grid to support it. We, we're using coal and natural gas. So it's not zero emissions because you're using coal, natural gas, and nuclear power to charge it. So, again, yeah. you can't use solar panels and, and wind turbines to charge cars because you only get about 4% of the entire country's usage off of it if everything's working perfectly. And those turbines don't run all the time. And solar panels can't always really absorb point. You know, or when there isn't any. It's a really good point. I'm, I'm, you waiting, know, for, I'm waiting for uh, Scotty to come along with dilithium crystals. For <laughs> yeah. Or, or what, what was the one, the uh, small nuclear power uh, you know, the size of your uh, oh, your cell phone. Yeah, right. China's like the perfect example of what happens when you put the cart before the horse. We want all electric, right? So now they realize we don't have a grid that can support it, so they're building nuclear power plants as quick as they can, oh. and now they're realizing we should be looking at hydrogen and other options because well, it isn't well, working the way we thought. Well, in, in, in the technology for the batteries, you know, they, they don't have enough of the – um, raw materials to build the batteries that would require them to supply. I don't know twenty percent of the uh, of the market for vehicles. I, I, they would run out of those minerals. There's no way they can do that. I, I just don't understand the logic. Exactly, and there's no solution. And then there's no recycle for it either on the backside. Yeah, I joked about dilithium crystals and and Scotty, but but even if you look forward four hundred years to to what Gene Roddenberry saw uh, in Star Trek. You know, yeah, he had dilithium crystals, but but uh, let's harken back to 15 minutes ago when we were talking about autonomous driving. Remember that when Captain Kirk sat down in the captain's chair, he still had Sulu with a steering wheel and yeah. brake pedals. One last question for you before we close out. Um, you're, you're both car enthusiasts, clearly. Paul, I know you're a foodie. Do you eat in your car? Sure, I do. No, not Paul. We have a little segment in our, on our Facebook page, our fan page, that's what the hell is Paul eating now? Oh, my God. He's eating gas station sushi from Erie, Pennsylvania. Oh, like, no, that's no not a foodie. Well, Paul, Lauren, yeah. uh, thank you very much uh, for your time. It's really been engaging. Thanks so much for the invitation. You. you can find uh, more of Paul and Lauren on his turn, herturn.com. Uh, guys, thanks thanks for your time today. And well, you're most welcome. You. And Lauren, you 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 tweet at Lauren Fix, and I tweet at the Paul Bryant. So stop by and say howdy if you have also any questions. In, Instagram or as well. Yeah, yeah, we love to talk cars. Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G. For more information and a free security assessment, visit motherg.com. If you want to have your company's story told on Midwest Mavericks, just send us a message. Go to motherg.com/podcast. That's motherg.com slash podcast.